years from now, millennia from now, is society going to talk about Christianity the same way Christianity talks about mythology? Welcome to Ingenious Perspectives. On this podcast, we aim to discuss issues that have loomed over the African-American experience for generations. It is our goal to present these topics, not just from our point of view, but from various research perspectives. We invite you to come shift your paradigm with us today. Today, we're going to be talking about institutions. Um, and if you've listened to any of our previous podcasts, you've heard Lawrence mention institutions several times. This is his baby, his, his bread and butter, however you want to describe it. So he's going to be leading us through this discussion and kind of guiding us while we talk about how we can use institutions to move forward um, and as a method for bettering the African-American community. So go ahead. Yeah, so... Like Dominique said, I I am all about institutions. Like I I see the day-to-day progress that we need to close these gaps as being, you know, the the solution to that as being institutions. Uh, There's a quote that that rings true to me. It's uh, Andre Perry. Uh, He says, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. Uh, What are you thinking? Uh, that's funny. That that's I think. All right. So to me, that quote says that the only thing wrong with black people is you know racism. It's essentially, right? That there's nothing inherently wrong, which is true, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with a group of people based solely on the color of their skin. But that idea only exists because of racism. It's just a really, really. It was a very eloquent way to say you know what we've all thought for a really long time. Yeah, and I I think how you close the gap how you end racism is through strong institutions because when you're on the outside looking in as in if you're someone outside our race looking into the race assessing a race uh, creating a uh, a mental perspective on a group of people you hold that group of people uh to its institutions let's say let's look at a country look at america how do you perceive america uh, you look at its institutions, you look at its, you know, if you look at the news today, you'll see you look at its police force or you look at its national government or you'll look at its uh, education system or you look at all these other things. These are the institutions of a nation. And there's nothing different when you're comparing a nation or a group of people like an ethnic group or a race, if you will, which, you know, a lot of people on here are probably listening and thinking there's no such thing as race. But, you know. Uh, we kind of have it a little bit. So institutions are what people on the outside looking into the black community are going to hold us to. They're going to look at the black church. They're going to look at HBCUs. They're going to look at our social organizations, our uh, the frats. They're going to look at NAACP, Urban League. They're going to look at our political figures and assess us. And when we change those perspectives, that's when racism goes away. When that, uh, you know, when that, when that law enforcement officer pulls you over and he knows that you have the full weight of the black community behind you uh, through its institutions, he's gonna treat you equally or more equally, right? Because yeah, you look at, um, and I don't want to compare too many ethnic groups together here, but you look at the 
uh, Jewish American experience. They have they have strengthened institutions in their community to protect the individuals in the community, and that's a uh, you know through you know media ties and community involvement. Um, it, that's what they've done. So that's the preface to this discussion is that I think institutions are the solution to all that ails us, if you will. Um, what is so? I guess when I hear that and you talk about institutions, one of the things that I wonder, we have so many institutions already, right? Do you feel as though we have too many weak institutions? Should we should we be trying to take the number, the sheer number of institutions we have and try to try to bring that down? And I say that like, all right, so we've got, you know, an Negro College Fund, right? We've got NAACP. We have Black Lives Matter, right? We have... Um, we have Islamic institutions, right, based on different religions. So different religious institutions. You've got Black Israelites, you've got Islam, you've got Christianity, right? So should we be trying to find a way to have these institutions work together to create a more powerful institution, or should they each individually be trying to grow and like bring the level up across the board? How do you see that? How do you see us moving forward with that? Yeah, so I'm going to paint a, a quick picture from a, a kids movie. Remember uh, Finding Nemo? Okay. When they all, when all those fish and Nemo and just keep uh, swimming. Yeah, just okay. keep swimming. They all get in that net, and they're all all the fish are panicking, sp- uh, swimming in all these different directions. And uh, Dory gets out there and says, "Just keep swimming. Swim down. If everybody swims down together, we can overcome this net trying to pull us out of the water." And that's what they do, and that's what institutions do. Okay. They focus individual effort. Uh, toward a task. Now, your original question of, you know, do we have enough institutions? Yes, we we have plenty. If you go to any uh, decent sized city in Amer- in America, you'll find you wouldn't you you'd be able to throw a rock and hit sixteen different organizations and institutions. But the problem is they're not strong enough, and there may be a dilution that's happening because we have a lot. Uh, of institutions and we only have so many people who are trying to you know be participants but uh yeah we have enough we don't need any more <laughs> we need i think we need we need stronger institutions more unified i think a microcosm of what we're talking about is uh is um again not focusing on the religion but focusing on the organization is uh black church in the south um there used to be a time that a town uh, would have, you know, one or two churches, and these would be big churches, you know. But you ride through cities like, you know, Portsmouth, Virginia, cities like Savannah, Georgia, and you'll see you you can't throw a rock without hitting six churches. Like they're they're, you know, you can walk out the front door of one church and see the other church. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, and so that it's a dilution of power, inability to affect change in the community when. Your congregation goes from a, a congregation size of 300 people to 30. Um, you know, when I'm a, if I'm Martin Luther King in the 60s and I'm trying to come through that community, where do I stop if I have 10 churches that all have 30 people versus one church that has a congregation of 300 people? I can't start to stop at all of them. Right. Right. So, and then I have to, you know, entertain the individual politics of each of these churches and all those other things. So, that kind of dilution is problematic, and that's what we've seen across all institutions 
not just in the black community, but nationally speaking, because there's this uh, under, you know, undermining of, you know, trust in institutions. So when I hear you talk about that, I, I can obviously see how we can do that with a shared religion, right? So you can take the number of, of black Christian churches um, and I can't even go as broad as Christian, right? Because, you know, black Presbyterian churches versus black Pentecostal churches versus black Baptist churches, right? Because there's, there's so many breakdowns within Christianity. But I guess my bigger question is when you go across religions, so when you talk about um, black Israelites and black Islam and black Christians, right? The, the goal that you're talking about as we swim down is that swimming down towards the end of systemic racism do you think that there's a way that these institutions can almost like bipartisanship right because you're that's that's almost to me that's what i'm hearing when when you talk about those differences is almost as as difficult right to get the different religions to work together is almost as difficult as getting different uh party affiliations to work together so how do you see Right, because obviously they still want to end racism. Black Islam wants racism gone as much as black Christians. So yeah. how do you see people being able to get past those differences? Because they're pretty they're pretty strong. I mean, you grew up in a church, right? They, I mean, those differences are kind of like ingrained in, right? So how do you, what do you think we can do? Oh, yeah. So if you listen to um, Malcolm X's speeches, I want to say it's about in the bullet, um, bullet speech, um, one of his famous speeches. He um, he's speaking to a, a group of combined faith audience. He's obviously a Muslim man, um, and during the speech, he talks about uh, leaving your religion at home because the fight that they're fighting right then and there needed everybody mobilized towards that objective. And you know, he makes a couple of jokes about Christianity being a Muslim man. Uh, and it's all held in good fun because the audience is, you know, they're all entertained essentially. They all, you can hear some people laughing a little bit. But uh, the the main thing he says, leave your religion at home in this particular context, in this particular fight. So what I what 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 I see going in, going forward is that you know combining organizations. So you're talking about NAACP as an example uh, is not a faith-based organization, right. right? So they should be able to hold events and, and rallies and mobilize folks in a non-religious way as a kind of a unifying force, focusing people on, on issues, issue by issue. So, and, and that's, I, I think that's what you would see. No, I don't expect, uh, you know, on a regular basis, every Sunday for the, you know, black Muslims and black Christians to, to, to pray together and, and go to sermons together every week or something like that but this you know um unified events from time to time just to 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 strengthen those community ties as one people right you know uh but it's just time and time again as you kind of turn the pages of history you see uh i mean we talk about you know martin luther king as being the pivotal individual but he stood atop a very powerful institution uh in several institutions that made the change that he he impacted possible, right? And and today that's what we need. Uh, we need that um, that foundation of institutions to be able to propel change. And, and you just didn't have that uh, like going through 
2014 when you know Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown uh, you know uh, when when those cases popped up to the national scene and you had Black Lives Matter mobilized across the nation you didn't have an institutional backing so that it essentially operated like a flare mm-hmm. went up went bright everyone looked and then it went out uh, so would you say they've now since 2014 would you say Black Lives Matter has now evolved to institutional status or would you still say that they pop up in that in that flare like form just just from your observations uh, unfortunately I gotta say they're still in a flare like form the the kindling if you will that the um, the flare is burning on is is there's more so it, it goes away slower but it's still not operating as a traditional organization, and and, and I'm not saying I expect um, there'd be Black Lives Matter membership, membership dues, and monthly meetings, right. and all those things like that. But you you know still having a hierarchy of individuals, a, a driven set of objectives, mm-hmm. a stated means, points of contact, like all those things that um, you know common financial um, you know framework, those things that that so, you'd see in a normal institution. So why do you talk about that? So, so you're saying that there that that from your observation, from your perspective, they're still in that flare-like status. Now, um, would you separate the hashtag Black Lives Matter from the flare um, quasi institution of Black Lives Matter? Because I'm seeing that phrase repeated with larger organizations with larger institutions non-black institutions right using that hashtag that phrase to symbolize their unification with our struggle so would you say that we it's reached a point where the hashtag and the 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 quasi institution are are almost separate where that institution could almost die off but that hashtag is going to continue through other institutions or or companies and and things of that nature. Yeah. So the Black Lives Matter slogan. I don't, I don't want to call it something else without undermining it. Uh, you yeah. Know. I guess a hashtag. That's a, my apology. So no, no, no. I, I think <laughs> I was I was going to flip that around. I think a hashtag because is a better way to say it than a slogan. But okay. slogan is kind of the technical term. But uh, yeah, the slogan of Black Lives Matter is everywhere. With everybody who puts that on the tweet isn't a Black Lives Matter, Matter member, okay. right? Um, so the organization, yes, there's a split, there's a separation there, and I, I agree 100%. You're going to see uh, if the organization that exists right now does not change, you'll see the idea outlast the organization. Okay. Um, I would hope that as this, this, this fire continues to burn, the uh, organization changes and grows and morphs and gets spread into the other organizations that already exist um, to you know further the racial justice cause. Okay, and and just to offer counterpoint right to to um, everything that Lawrence is saying. So um, as we talk about Black Lives Matter and that evolution towards institution, if you go on their site, you can see um, where they have chapters in different areas, but. We're, we're very concentrated in the Northeast. Um, in fact, on the West Coast, there are three chapters. There's 
one in the in the Midwest area, but a really high concentration in the in the Northeast. Um, there's a link here on how to start a chapter in your local area. So, so they're trying to evolve, like Lawrence said, they're trying to get from the flare up to institutional status, and they're and they're working that. Do you? Is that something that you believe? Do you think that Black Lives Matter? will come to replace the NAACP as the new institution or do you think they're going to try to work hand in hand? So having gone to a, a lot of NAACP meetings, I can tell you that the or that organization is in a generational crisis right now. Okay. Um, the vast majority of its members are very, uh, they're, they're older and they, uh, they have a very particular view of how you challenge the racial injustice that's happening today. Their their angle is in the courts and boycotts for the okay. vast majority of things. That's the, that's the funneling solutions to the majority of their, the problems that come up. Um, Black Lives Matter is much younger and much more mobilizing, as in they want to do the protests, they want to get out there. And Black Lives Matter is very singularly focused. And so that's kind of an unfair uh, comparison, comparison okay. between NWC and Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter is all about police and justice, law enforcement reform. Okay. Um, and NLACP has a much broader mission, okay. but with uh, a very narrow tool, um, I guess toolbox. Their toolbox is the courts, primarily. They focus on lawyers taking cases to court and getting justice that way. Um, with that comparison, I would, I would then call it um, similar to what we discussed in the first episode about reform and revolution, about the, the way that... Um, the hands, Malcolm X and Dr. King, they had to wash each other's hands, right? In the, in the sense that um, you can protest as much as you want, right? Not to say that protest doesn't matter, but your protests don't create the the permanence of the change, right? At the end of the boycotts, the the bus boycotts, there had to be laws passed that said, okay, this is no longer this is no longer acceptable, right? So we understand that the protests will inspire the change, but the the legal, the legal reform, the legal portion is required in order to make this permanent, in order to make it so it's not just something where all right, we're going to change temporarily and go back to make that a thing that stays till the end of, of whenever this country doesn't exist. You need that legal aspect. Yeah, I think about the, the vehicle change like a torch that the revolutionaries light and pass it off to the reformists. Okay. Because uh, that's what that's what usually happens. You, you I mean even you think about what's happening with 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 the protests and in things today is this this lighting of a fire with with protests peaceful peaceful protests some violent protests is signaling to the powers that be and uh, showing a change in the you know national mindset and the powers that be with reformists alongside are going okay these are the things that need to change you right. take down these damn statues right. you need to you know these you know police body cameras need to change we talk about defunding the police and the changes that you know the police reform that we talked about in the last episode right. so those those are the things that that happen and those, those reformists usually come from institutions and that's that's where uh the value of institutions exists because without the, for example, another institution I like to, I like to look at is the um, Black Caucus, the, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus. That's where a lot of the brain trust of you know black policymakers gets flexed out. And and as as someone else I'll quote, uh, 
a little bit of a different kind of revolutionary, uh, Karl Marx. He talks about, you know, when crisis happens, it's only the ideas that are laying around that get adopted. You don't create new ideas. And so that, blame, that brain trust that the Congressional Black Caucus has as an institution um, is, is what has, uh, you know, the break glass in case of emergency list of demands that are ready for when the protesters, you know, finally get out in the streets. You bring up the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, is that a bipartisan organization or is that only Democrats, only Republicans? So by its charter, it's bipartisan. Okay. So given that it's bipartisan um, and we have the, the lone black Republican senator, um, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, uh, I'm seeing that he's not a member of that Congressional Black Caucus. So I guess what I'm circling back to is that same question I kind of asked earlier about when we talk about institutions, the differences in, in religions, how can people come together with those differences? Right, We're seeing a prime example here, at least to me, what I'm seeing is an example of the fact that um, differences in, in opinions, even though clearly Tim Scott would want equality for black people, right? Even though clearly he would want to not experience racism, he would want his family members to not experience racism, he hasn't joined that group whose fight is for that, that ending of racism. So how do you see us dealing with what what here is a is a clearly partisan issue um from a from a bipartisan stance yeah there, there will be outliers right. there will be folks who uh who for whatever reason don't want to be a part of the organization and i think the congressional black caucus is a very good example with tim scott because tim scott is a republican tim scott um has a ton of great ideas when it comes to uh you know ending uh inequality racial inequality in this country um, but uh, the thing is, right now in this snapshot of time, uh, the vast majority of uh, black lawmakers are Democrats. And the nature of the, the policy positions they're taking are very, very progressive in a way that it, for Tim Scott's uh, chances to continue to be reelected, he can't associate himself with that. Hmm. Um, you know, and I, I can't really weigh in on the on the validity of his you know position in that matter but i i understand it right you know for him he's south carolina right you know you, you can't run around talking about green new deal in south carolina and, and plan to get reelected. but that's the position that the congressional black caucus has taken i think we should do a green new deal but i know if i was a republican in, in south carolina can't i can't get behind that so so then that, i guess that kind of leads to a question on right what I would say is maybe one of our most powerful institutions, right, is is family, right? Because when we talk about him being from South Carolina, we talk about how he was raised, we talk about right geographical um, stereotypes versus racial stereotypes, right? Because he's as a black man, people would assume he's Democrat, but as a man from South Carolina, his beliefs right may be different as a man from the South. What he grew up believing could be completely different from what some a black man in New York grew up observing and believing so family institution right because obviously we see here that that family his upbringing plays a huge role in how he approaches dealing with racism versus how i might approach dealing with it so where do you see the institution of family fitting into this fight i mean it's, it's huge i mean family uh the institution of the black family i'll focus on that real quick has yeah family is hugely important um 
you you cannot overstate the importance of family, importance of that foundation you get, uh, at, you know, in childhood, growing up to young adulthood, and then further on the support groups. I mean, every uh, economic estimate of the effects of racial injustice on a black community pretty much starts with your parents didn't have a, have the same amount of money as white parents do. Right. So, I mean, you can't overstate that. So. When you ask, you know, the impact of the, let's say, any any attack on the black family as an institution, it, I mean, you just don't, you, you just can't put a, a period at the end of that sentence. Okay. It, it just continues on. So, so we've talked about, um, we've talked about black church as an institution. We've talked about uh, non-religious organizations like the NAACP and Black Lives Matter as institutions. We've talked about the family as an institution. Do you feel as though there's any other branch of that, right, that we're missing um, as far as as far as institutions that can strengthen our fight and our leverage within this fight? Yeah. So, you know, to, I'll kind of close the gap a little bit on the on the family conversation because okay. uh, what the economic part of racial injustice does is it distracts parents poverty hmm. does a lot to your brain okay. especially when you're in a country like America where you can be in Silicon Valley homeless as people drive by you with enough money and power to buy islands right so uh, it's one thing if you're in a society that's universally poor um, there's there's evidence that shows studies have shown that this psychological impacts of poverty are much less in that in that context because your expectations of richness aren't aren't there and you don't see richness on your day to day. But uh, if you are homeless on the streets, sleeping outside someone else's house, and a lot of you know a lot of times that's that's the situations you have in downtown uh, cities, then you definitely have you know social stress that immediately gets imparted to your kids. So you're, you know, raised up in poverty with that social stress that this is the PTSD, uh, PTSD that comes with being uh, impoverished in America. You pass that to your kids. And there, there's little, there's, there's evidence in the DNA of your children from poverty. So, so if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is the, the struggle to stay afloat financially distracts from the ability to create a more racially equal society because I can't really I don't really have time to protest I don't really have time to show up to these events I don't really have time to try to build a better world if I have to work this job and work a part-time job and work overtime and constantly find a way to keep my family afloat financially is that what you're getting at or am I misinterpreting yeah I mean you, you got it all the way you start let's uh, let's look at the, the I'll, I'll start with the the proven fact right I put I have a resume I make it the same exact resume I put Tyrone on the top of one of them and I put John on the top of the other right right I am less likely as Tyrone to get the callbacks right and so that leads to economic difference in outcomes right and to to prevent naming names of organizations I had that experience at a, at a job that I worked um, there was a young lady who applied using her first name um, and did not get the job, didn't get a call, didn't get an interview, just nothing, resume, 
disappeared into wherever it disappeared um and then she reapplied no more experience than she had before no more education than she had before but she reapplied using her middle name which was less traditionally right air quotes black um and she got the job yeah and i've seen it uh and i literally heard this first person from someone who is uh, uh in human resources was looking at addresses in the local area uh, knew the black side of town huh and saw addresses and filtered applications based on based the on folks who lived over so, there on so that side of town even moving past names now right. now we've moved on to wow yeah so and, and again that's 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 not a, it's an anecdotal story, story for me i hearing that first person right but so you start with that impact harder to get jobs mm-hmm. economic impact from that now you know your kids are living in homes that are, have on average less income to deal with so that's less money for after school activities that's less money for uh to live on a good side of town in a good school district mm-hmm. right and i keep saying good but you know right. measure these things right um and then now you have different outcomes in education you have a differential skills coping mechanisms that come with after school activities and sports and other things like that and then you know you're walking into life in adulthood with all these negative things is you know as a young adult you're supposed to be able to start into the world fresh and you're already three steps behind your you know your non-black counterparts mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of the the impact that just looking at economics now you can take this same you know kind of analysis and apply it to health outcomes right. apply it to law enforcement outcomes and apply it to and it's just you create this this really messed up picture of why our community again and again ends up behind and strengthening the institution of family i believe through other institutions whether you're talking about the church and you're talking about and i'll tell you the last one i think we're missing is the education institution um that's like the biggest vehicle everyone talks about education being the key but a lot of times we miss uh the mark on what we're talking about we're usually talking about um, whether or not the kids know the capitals of the state or how to write in cursive and shit like that. No, it's not. That's not where the money is, right? The money of ed- education is is in empowering kids to navigate the modern world. You know, and empowering kids to get good jobs, getting out of high school. So, when you when you talk about that that level of education reform, are you thinking that we should be? Um, changing our approach to i guess like elective based courses should we should we be instituting more real to life courses because i mean knowing calculus is cool but if you're not planning to one go to college or two hold down a or even study something in college criminal justice for example my degree is in criminal justice and you know i took calc in high school and i mean that was cool and all but overall it wasn't very useful for for college or for my life in law enforcement or at the commonwealth attorney's office or, or any jobs i had related to criminal justice so do you do you think we should be modifying based on like career tracks or should we just offer more options like how, how are you seeing that we can change the educational institution yeah, so i think what you come out of school focusing on in the classroom is less important as far as the reform that needs to happen. Okay. And what's more important is who owns the, and I don't mean owns like, you know, who has the deed, but who has 
the say so on what the kids get to learn. Okay. And if the community does not own that, then that's when you have the bad outcomes. That's okay. when the kids learn shit that they don't need to learn. Okay. That's when uh, the skill sets that students are leaving edu- uh, the education system with aren't matching up with the reality of the modern world. Like, I, I agree, and everybody says this, you know, I don't even know that calculus because X, Y, and Z. I personally, personally believe that the way of thinking that physics, um, the study of physics gives you is, is powerful. And I agree. And, I agree and that understanding think, your physical world, right, and right. how the world works is super important. I, 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 I mean, you yeah, can't and, argue with that. And then as a foundation of physics, is usually the math that goes right, with it. Yeah, I guess and you're that's, right. <laughs> that's I guess you're that's right. what usually the pushback I end up seeing on, on that on that level, yeah. So, all right. So, personal question: In so you went to school in in Savannah, right? Right. So, did you guys have options for vocational technical programs? They in, existed in high school. They existed because, like, we have Votech in Hampton Roads, yeah. right? And that's right. It's something that you do. It's to my knowledge, it, it doesn't cost anything extra, right? You do it as a... So, I, I feel like you're about to go around the rabbit hole of, uh, you know, hey, college, you get a whole bunch of loans coming off it, and it's not as uh, uh, marketable and advantageous as it used to be. Well, and no. now you go tech schools, tech schools, you know, you can get a lot of money from trades and all those things well, like that. Well, not even necessarily that, just options, right? You don't have to... I mean, I'm not saying people should go to tech, should or shouldn't, yeah. right? I, I particularly don't use my degree. You do use yours. So, I mean, there are two, we got two halves of that just just with the two of us where you have, where your, your degree is clearly very useful to your day-to-day job. And my degree is a piece of paper to my day-to-day job. So I wouldn't go in that direction, but just having that option, I'm just asking, was that something, because yeah. I don't know so much it, about outside of Hampton uh, In Savannah, it, it was an option, and then I was in another school district before that in uh, Central Florida, and it, it, they also had an option. The, the, the kind of problem that we run into with this kind of area of the conversation is everybody kind of agrees that, yes, trade school for most people is the best route like like realistically speaking if you walk out of an undergraduate program with a and I'll, I'll list out degrees and i'll probably make people upset but uh your psychology degrees your business minister or business management management degrees your communication degrees criminal justice degrees. criminal justice degrees <laughs> like there's a bunch of liberal arts especially degrees that you walk out of school with and the thing that you walk out of school with is one something to put on a resume and two, uh, essentially the proof that you know how to do work. Mm-hmm. And the ability to research well for a podcast. Exactly. Yeah. And hence, <laughs> hence our need for interns. Um, uh. But that, and that's, that's really all you walk away with. Not another skill set that there's other degrees out there. And again, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but that the STEM field degrees, you kind of walk away with not necessarily secret knowledge, but a professional level of knowledge. So like for a doctor, doctor comes out of med school with medical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now they, you know, before they went to medical school, they can't be a doctor. Now after medical school, they can be because they know stuff. Right. Right. So you hire them based on being a doctor. But uh, the vast majority of folks that go to college don't come out of college with something that they now know that nobody else knows. That nobody, right. Okay. So, in, 
and so I think most people would be better off going to tech school. But the caveat is, I got a little girl. Right. When she gets eighteen, it's time for her to decide: hey, I'm going to go to college or I'm going to go to the tech school. I'm not going to encourage her to go to tech school. Okay. And not saying that because it's a bad idea, but because I'm definitely evidence of the societal pressure that we all have that I and my brain think of for whatever reason the plumber is less viable uh, viable to society hmm. than the quote office worker okay and that's messed up right because right. a lot of times that plumber makes way more money has way more job satisfaction than the quote office worker right working whatever job they're doing mm-hmm. i don't even know what they're doing right because right. i've never been to office workers so. okay <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I can go. We can go down that rabbit hole all day. But the the going back to the kind of the institution part of this conversation, uh, we as a community have to own more of our K through twelve education than we do now. Okay. And also for post, you know, for our post secondary education for the universities and all, we have to support them more. And that's the change they kind of need because they're there. They're rocking. They're pumping out graduates mm-hmm. at a record level. We have way more gra- uh, black graduates than we have ever had mm-hmm. in, in our nation's history. We have more um, because of because of our HBCUs. I'm talking about HBCUs right now. We have more economic viability than we've ever had in our history. Um, but right now in this moment, there is a, you know, for especially for those folks that were not part of the HBCU experience. Me being one of them, there's uh, a sense that the HBCUs aren't performing. Hmm. I think you and I think you had an experience earlier talk, talking about. Uh, you can probably share with the, you know yeah. share with the listeners. Um, just uh, in one of my one of my earlier jobs, or I, so I, I didn't go to an HBCU. Um, got my criminal justice degree and. In one of my jobs, there were uh, a large number of people there who had attended HBCUs and studied the same or very similar fields. And the, I mean, the information is no different, but the perception of what they knew leaving, right, was was very different, right? The idea that, all right, I went to ODU and got this criminal justice degree, and then someone says, all right, well, I went to Norfolk State and got this criminal justice degree. There was just this idea that I inherently knew more and that was probably 95 percent of the time not true like i just didn't <laughs> didn't know yeah. i wasn't very great in school i stayed long enough and went to class enough and they eventually said okay here's your degree you know here, here you go you can go ahead and go now you showed up enough <laughs> and i said thank you and, and moved on about my business and so i think there's just this negative connotation associated with it and it's very, very, very similar to um, what, what UNC experienced when they had the cheating scandal. The information being presented was no different, and it wasn't something that rocked the entire university. But during that time, if you came out from that university and said, hey, my degree is from UNC Chapel Hill, people were like, uh, yeah, maybe not. Right. And so I, I've seen, you know, that a, a very similar thing. Um, in, in my travels and in my interactions that there's just this assumption that if you went to an HBCU you didn't get the same 
information as if information is different right you know as if howard's or, or harvard's psych 101 course is different from tcc's psych 101 course like the the information is the same so yeah. it really it, it shouldn't it shouldn't matter yeah and and not you know again not H, not all hbcus are are equal however common there's nothing intrinsic to an hbcu as far as their lectures is kind of what you're saying right. that that's that makes it inferior it's more but, a student to I'll, I'll say this when when uh when i whenever i've toured an hbcu because then I'm, I'm pwy um product uh, primarily white institution touring a, uh the hbcus and spending time on the campuses and everything like that there was a sense of family there hmm. that i think is invaluable uh, and i think that's why you look at if you were to control for you know a socioeconomic group major and uh, even location sometimes you see that the um the hbcu grads are uh in a lot of measurable ways better off than um black students that graduate from pwis hmm. uh, you're talking about income happiness measurements and other things like that uh it's kind of surprising to see the data especially me coming from pwi but uh it's um it's it's interesting. I I'll think that that shows that, the to that, that too. That's uh, okay. Yeah, it, it shows the the value of the institution, uh, especially having a institution in our community of our community, um, and you, you'll actually see as well some of the impacts that the HBCUs have on the surrounding uh, communities, especially when it comes to their partnerships with local, you know, uh, elementary and high schools. The the impact that the fraternities and sororities have on the local students with the mentorship and all those other things. Um, so, is, again, I, mean, I think that's the kind of last major front of inst institutions um, that I would say have to be mobilized and have to be reinforced. Uh, again, there's kind of a skepticism wave that's, that's kind of rocking this country, uh, especially after a series of high-profile institutional failures. Um, that are making people want to turn away from institutions. I mean, if you look at uh, the Catholic Church as an institution, there was a time where the Catholic Church got to tell Europe who their kings would be. And now today, you know, the Catholic Church is nowhere near that level of power. Um, and a lot of people would say they deserve that fall. They deserve that because uh, a lot of their shortcomings in protecting children and, and, uh, and victim uh, populations in the church. So it, that's you know that's one of the whole high profile cases. Look at law enforcement today as an institution, right? They're uh, they're failing to uphold the standards and they're failing to you know rise to the expectations of the citizenry, right? So we're all looking at the institution trying to take away power, take away um, some of the the roles that they're playing in our society, and that's what. You know, institutions like HBCUs, institutions like the Black Church, they're going through that same you know experience right now. When we talk about the different overall groupings of institutions, ideally, right? If you're you're in charge, you're right. You've got the power to control how people are operating. Are you wanting? Um, and again, when we come from the format, we're talking about family, education, religious. And then social institutions, and by social, right, I'm referring to NAACP and Black Lives Matter and groups like that, uh, Black fraternities, right, things of that nature. Um, 
are you seeing them attack the same way or do you believe that each of those institutions should be aiming for different specific things within that elimination of of racism yeah so one of the things like being in the military especially the navy tells you kind of teaches you is specialization okay you have your job i have mine right i aim to trust that when everything breaks down whenever when all hell is breaking loose you're going to do your job i'm going to do mine and we're all going to be all right all right and i think that specialization is key because there's things that an organization like black lives matter or naacp or fraternity can do that a black church cannot okay right there's there's spheres that the uh, hbcu can operate in that a family unit cannot okay right and so yeah that I don't see everyone doing the same thing. I see, I see the objective of ending institutional racism, ending systematic racism, ending race-based inequality as all being like the top three objectives that you got to have. But uh, when it comes to, do I expect the Q dogs to go after that in the same way as I expect, you know, uh, the family reunion gathering to? No, right? Can't be. Okay. Is <laughs> is. It's not going to look the same. Same thing for uh, for businesses, like and, and that's something that you know we hadn't talked about that a little bit because that's I think it's a bigger conversation for later. Business is definitely a, a discussion for right, a, a later date, and hopefully, right, we'll put that on a list of things that we have to circle back around to. So, in that you you feel that each institution has its own individual specialty. If you could tell each of those larger overarching institutional groups to change or improve or any way that they could do something better to help right us swim down right the analogy is what we started with to help us swim down toward the end of racism what would you tell each of those institutions to do that one thing yeah so i kind of go down the list a little bit so starting with like i think the one of the most important institutions to my family uh is raising up resilient children okay because uh, in this in this world we're living in you're gonna have you're gonna have problems and you're gonna have to have the ability to you know respond navigate and get through those problems in a way that doesn't damage you permanently mm-hmm. right um you know focusing on the main thing the things that matter and not being social you know emotionally damaged by the tax that we're going to receive right especially yeah, it, if you look at the Tulsa example, you had a prosperous black neighborhood, and the reaction to that prosperity was violence. Right. And we end racism. We're going to end racial inequality first, and there will be a reaction to that when the average black person has just as much wealth, goes from where we're at right now. Right of not having equal wealth to having just as much wealth as, wealth and power as the average white person, you will have a reaction. Okay. And so our kids have to be resilient to weather that reaction. Okay. Now, um, obviously we're not gonna be able to tell you guys how to, uh, Lawrence or myself, how to create that resiliency, right? That's. That's about parenting and, and knowing your kids and how to do that. But I see, I, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. That being able to respond and adapt and overcome. I, okay. I'm with you. So family, um, 
What's the next one? So we got family, what, education. Yeah. Hit net? Okay. Yeah, so so education. Education. I think I got to prong out, you know, separate education into two things. One, maximize the earning potential of the young kids. Okay. Like in the, like, in the story of all the social stuff aside, maximize earning potential. Uh, if that means these kids are graduating with degrees and subjects they they like a little less than the stuff they really like to learn about, hmm. that's okay. They need to have they need to make more money in life. Okay. Because they in their free time they can do the stuff that they would love to do and read about and all the kind of things. But we need people to have more wealth, more money in their pockets because in a capitalist society which we live in, that is the the surest way to power inequality is closing that wealth gap so on the surface i'm going to say that i i don't fully agree with that one um it's it's one that i would want to to break down more and to get into more um but i i get what i get where you're going with it i get what you're saying that um like i could love doing what i do but if it doesn't provide me with financial security and i'm still living impoverished then you know i go to work happy every day but i haven't really been able to help the institutional cause. So I think I think if I'm understanding what you're saying right, it's sacrificing my personal needs for the needs of the African American community as a whole to help that growth. Is that what you're? Yeah. Yes and no. So I'm not talking about from for the individual. Okay. I'm talking about from the perspective of an educational institution. So I got a whole bunch of freshmen coming in from my freshman class, right? And uh, a vast majority of these students, so like seventy to sixty percent don't know what they actually want to do okay so my job institution is i should steer those children i say children those young adults mm -hmm. to careers and educations that education degrees that maximize their inter potential okay no i'm not saying for the individual for them to uh hey i really 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 want to be a um a social worker or a mental health therapist you know, sitting across the you know the table from people uh and you can make more money as a therapist going through four more degree years of school, residencies, X, Y, Z, make that sacrifice and do it. No, you can be a social worker. That's fine. That's your individual life choice. Okay. And I'm not saying sacrifice for the cause like that, but I'm saying for an institution, if I have that student who says, hey, I don't know if I just want to, you know, do these four years, get my social worker degree and go out there and work for the state doing various functions for the state, helping families out. Or do I want to stay in school for another four years to be a therapist? If being a therapist makes me more money, I want the institution to say, hey, go this route. Okay. That kind of thing. All right. I mean, yeah. And I, I don't I don't think institutions will be opposed to that, telling people to stay in school and pay them more money for four yeah, more years. Exactly. I, don't, <laughs> I don't think they'd have any complaints about that. So you were saying that's a two-prong, though. So what's the other? Yeah, uh, uh, the second prong uh, thing that I the education system has to do is teach our history better. And I say, I'm not talking about, and I'm talking about specifically our education system. So our HBCUs, our community um, schools, the schools that we own. And that's what, that's where that first part that we kind of talked about, you know, a couple of minutes ago, was about we have to own our own our, our education system. We have to be at the, on the school boards. We have to be at the parent-teacher conferences. Um, our history has to be part of the curricular curriculum, and I'm not talking about on you know, February looking at that one slave ship drawing right. that everybody knows about, mm -hmm. where all the little slaves are laying down yeah. in the boat. No, I'm talking about our real history. 
Okay. Um, and that I think that's critical. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I want part of that solution um, to become a second prong on the family institution. Most of what I know about our history was taught to me by my mother. Because, um, as you said, the schools pick up in February, show you a picture of a slave ship. Um, you know, my, now my history teacher, I felt like my U.S. history teacher was a little bit more in depth than what I've heard from other people with their U.S. history courses. So we got we got a little bit more, but there's still a curriculum right, that, that they have to follow. So there was still that, that limitation because the curriculum doesn't call for you to go very in depth. So... Um, 90% might be exaggerating, but at least 75% of that base knowledge of African-American history that I had came from my mother, right? I took that and researched and went on and learned more, but that that foundation, I would have to say at least 75% came from my mother. So just because of my experience, I would say that um, we could benefit from putting part of that second prong into family as well. But again, that's just off the cuff. You know, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't. I don't know that that's a viable solution. It could have just been my experience was different. My mother happened to know those things and blah, blah, blah. But, but yeah. No, I mean, what she's talking about is, is a hallmark of a real culture. That's that's what cultures do. They're in their family, they pass down history. And for a lot of us, we do have that experience. And a lot of us don't. So I, I 100% agree with you. You're splitting, you know, having that second prong in the family category. Um, so kind of... I think the third social, you know, so third institution we were talking about was the social groups. Okay. And I think that is where political action should be the focus. Okay. So you have, uh, and I'm talking about across a full spectrum of social social institutions. So everything from, again, Black Lives Matter to um, fraternity and sorority organizations, their political activism, political involvement should be their uh, their like, primary focus right just mobilizing people to uh put pressure on lawmakers run for office build those political networks all that kind of stuff is is, is i think i think that's the, the appropriate place for that kind of thing okay you do that in the family level it's, it, it has limited impact right because you our families are only but so big you try to do that in a school setting and you just get uh, when you start mixing politics with school, you start mixing politics in school. It's uh, again, it's not always the best thing, but the social setting is where you, you get the vast majority of, especially those like-minded people. Because you, you talked about a very uh, critical flaw that happens with institutions is when you have an institution that has a certain certain ideology, um, and then you have somebody who does not. Fit, fit in that ideology, right? Yeah. And they they don't uh, they don't participate in the institution, right? So, yeah. um, well, one thing I'm gonna say something I like about the and I don't know if you did it on purpose, but something I like about the solutions that you have so far, right? So if we talk about and this is just my observation. So we talk about family, and the resiliency of the individual, right? And when you have more resilient individuals who are able to better adapt to changing situations then as they go through their education and they find alternative paths that can help them 
grow financially that are you know not completely divergent from their original path but it will be a little bit of a modification they have the resiliency to adapt to that change in order to maximize their earning potential and by maximizing their earning potential they're able to contribute more to these social organizations hey. who are pushing for political action right See what's happening? and then also right in the education by understanding your own history you know exactly what your fight what types of political action you want based on all right I've, i know that we've tried this before and it didn't work i know that we've tried this before and it has worked i know that historically right so i like the i like how organic your solutions kind of flow from family to education to to social um institutions but we'll get into that last institution yeah. so the last one is kind of the the glue that holds it all together i want the uh the kind of religious organizations um, to focus primarily on morality. Okay. And that is where, you know, as you, you kind of see throughout history, if you, if you, if you're a practitioner of any, uh, of any religion, you see that that's where the vast majority of your, your time is spent is enforcing morality, understanding morality. And so that, I think that's the most appropriate place for that. Things like having integrity, lying, cheating, those core you know, lack of a better word here, core value uh, <laughs> that you have. Um, it makes everything else work because you can't have a strong family if you're not honest okay. with each other. Gotcha. You can't have a, a, a strong educational institution if everyone is lying and cheating. Right. Right. And you don't have trust in a social organization if you don't have integrity. Okay. So like those, that's where that think that happens the kind of problem that comes in that and I don't want, I'm not trying to endorse one religion over another but there are differences between value structures in some religions and others right mm-hmm. between what is important what isn't moral, morally speaking what if there's equality between genders or equality across um, uh, racial groups or there, there's there are some baked in I think what the average American would view as immoral Mm-hmm. Features in some religions right. out there. Now, I w- I'll say that I don't know much about. I, I don't know anything, right? I'll just go ahead and not even not even sugarcoat it. I don't know anything about the polytheistic religions, but I will say for the most the three major monotheistic religions, and by major I'm referring to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam or Muslim, right? Those three, um, at their core, still have, and as you said, they're different different value structures, pieces here and there, but those three at their core still have treating people, um, I guess, I don't want to say treating people right because that's so vague, but right, that, that idea that we are supposed to treat others, you know, in this, in the, based on our relationship with that higher power, not based on how they treat us, right? They, they all have that kind of at their core that because of my relationship with God, Allah, Yahweh, I treat you well not because of how you treated me and so right it, at least in that in that aspect i think that um, what you're saying is going to hold hold true that if we strengthen that religious aspect of it we'll build better right people i don't know put that in air quotes better people i guess yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that religion is one of those things especially again it's a, a modern cosmopolitan world right that is often looked seen as like a, a leftover from a different time for a lot of like modern observers but where we are today it's 
a very useful tool uh, without getting into the really, you know, like actual actual religious elements, but right. just looking at it from a so as a social organization, is it is a very powerful tool in shaping morality, yeah. and I, I think we would be uh, setting ourselves back if we chose not to continue to use that tool right. in a toolbox. That's one of the questions I have about Christian, but that's a different discussion. But it's 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 one of those things of you know years from now millennia from now is society going to talk about christianity the same way christianity talks about mythology like is it just going to be another mythology once we you know years from now is it is it going to withstand because i'm sure the greeks believed that theirs was going to withstand and the romans believed it was going to withstand and now we talk about like can you believe these people they believed a horse pulled the sun like what are, yeah. what are we talking about that's crazy that's <laughs> and if, so if i could get a time machine that's one of the questions that's one of the yeah. things that i want to i'm very you know obviously i won't be here to find out but yeah that's that's very interesting to me so today um lawrence got to introduce you all to his baby um, institutions and how institutions can be used to um, assist us in this fight how institutions can organize us to keep swimming right as we're as we're stuck in that we're stuck in that net of uh, institutionalized racism and systemic racism hey. um, how they can help us continue to push down um, and get and get out of that um, and so we, we focused, as he said, there are other institutions, but we focused on four major ones. And so hopefully you can take your own time and think about those four major institutions and a small aspect of the solutions that he mentioned, because there are plenty more solutions to be discussed. But um, we can take a little bit of what we got here today, shift your paradigms and find a better way to focus yourself. Um, and so that we're not all swimming in different directions and get rid of these problems that we all see in front of us. So once again, this is Genius Perspectives.